We're going to be looking at James chapter 1 again this morning. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 27. Uh, We started this last week. We're going to come back to it again today, and I'm going to read the passage in a a few moments. There's a lot of messaging out there right now. There's a lot of noise. In such a time, we can easily be swept along with the wrong messages and embrace dangerous narratives. I think that is more true today than any time I have ever seen uh, in my lifetime with the number of cultural messages that are out there. Uh, This poor farmer had that going on at Thanksgiving time for him. I'll give you a chance. Is this really that hard to understand? Um, Okay. There's false messaging. There's narratives that can fool us and trick us, and we all have that potential of getting drawn in. But the greatest threat, the greatest challenge, the most Invasive false narrative is the one that we actually spin for ourselves. There's a phrase that we have culturally, uh, keeping it real. And it's a phrase that talks about the importance of seeing things as it really is. I was struck this week that Steve, Steph Curry from the Golden State Warriors was in a game, he scored 35 points, but his team still lost by 10, and so they were talking to him after the game, how he felt, and, and uh, how frustrating it must have been, discouraging for the team, and he made this statement. He said, night to night it's hard with a new group when you're playing really talented teams. We need to just be real with ourselves, and what we need to do better, not get in our feelings when we don't play well. Now, now what's he saying? When he says we need to knock into our feelings, we need to keep it real. He's saying we we need to not hear this louder than it is. We need to not not have a different impression. Uh, We need to not think, oh, we're no good. We can't improve. We're hopeless. He's saying we can play better. We just need to get back to certain things and, and we'll be fine. Older players on a team tend to bring that kind of perspective, right? They have the ability to come alongside of the young hotshots and help them not think too much of themselves. They also have the ability to come along with players that are are struggling and and to help them not think too little of themselves. What older players can do is to help them fight against a deceptive self-analysis. That's exactly what James is doing in James chapter 2. In these verses, he is speaking, he who is the physical brother of Jesus Christ, half-brother. He's the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and he's writing a general letter to all all the believers at this point throughout the Roman Empire. And he's helping them not be deceived about themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. He's trying to help them keep it real. With that in mind, I'd like you to look at James chapter 1, verse 22 to 27, and here's what we read. And I'm reading from the ESV. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for truth. And as Mike prayed earlier, we do thank you for the word of God. We thank you that we can love your word and we can learn from it. But Lord, we love your word because it takes us to the one that we love. And we want to love you. We want to know you. We, we want you to become the central reality and the most important person in our lives. And Lord, as we look at this passage and how it directs us ultimately to you, and then how it directs us out to being extenders of love to others, I, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we looked at verses 19 to 21, where we saw that James was admonishing us to be listeners to truth, and he says there's three ways. First, you're, you're quick to listen, quick to hear. We talked about the intentional role, and I rolled into that, the idea of joining with Pastor Mike, uh, with the, the, the writing out 10 verses a day. There needs to be some intentionality if we're going to be listening to the scriptures, he says also, be slow to speak. I think this certainly means that we're, we're listening too much to our own voice, but it also means we're not listening, we avoid listening too much to other voices, which then become our voice and drown out the voice of God. He also says, if you're going to really be listening to God and being shaped by God, you're going to have to be slow to wrath. You're going to have to be slow to anger. Not letting your soul be stirred up, not our angry, unsettled, aggressive, spirited, because it makes it impossible to really be living in quietness with the Spirit of God, so vital to Christian experience, so much so that he says in the next phrase, because the anger of man does not produce the righteous life God desires. We need to be imbibing and listening to truth. But today we want to be living out truth. And the believers in the early churches were in danger of deceiving themselves and not really keeping it real. They had truth. They even to some degree were listeners of truth. But they weren't living it. So I'd like to look at just a couple of things. First of all, how do we keep it real as Christians? And there are two ways we're going to look at. Number one, by doing what God tells you to do. He says this in verse 22 and following. I'm just going to read a couple of phrases here. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He tells us, I think we first need to think about what it means, and he illustrates this here, of what it means if you are not keeping it real. It's interesting that the word that is translated hearer in this passage is only used four times in the New Testament. Three of them are in verses 22 to 25. 
The other one is found in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul makes almost an exact same statement, and he says this, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now the word hearer here is a little different than the normal one. There's a normal word for hear or listen or being a hearer or a listener. It's used countless times in the New Testament. But this particular word takes the root of that word and adds a, 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 an accelerator to it. It basically is saying, these people who are listening are hyper-listeners. It's as if James could come to us and say, hey, hey, are you listening to the word? And we respond, I am an on-steroid listener. I am on, on sugar listener. I mean, I'm listener, I'm a, I'm a note-taking listener. As a matter of fact, I take screenshots of my notes. I'm listening. I, James, I am a hyper-listener. And James says, good, but I'm really not that hot on how well and how much you're listening. My question is, when you listen, are you a liver? I'm not just looking for listeners. I'm looking for livers. And that's cool. You're hyper. And, and it's interesting. He says, these are hyper listeners. These are hot listeners. I mean, they're taking notes, which I love, by the way, but they're taking notes. They're, they're, they're hanging on every word. But he says, that's not the goal, though. That's good. But he says, are you living what you're listening to? And it's great. You may be the person out there and saying, you know, 10 verses a day. you got to be, I'm doing 20 verses a day. I'm a hyper listener. And James says, well, if you're not living, you're listening, then you're like a guy that stares into the mirror and sees stuff, and it says he, he gazes in. He's, he's intently, I mean, he's the guy that's coming to the mirror, and he's saying, I think between my lateral incisor and my canine, that's a big piece of broccoli. And wait, are those sleepy seeds? And this haircut I got, oh man, wait a minute. They went above the ear here, and they're almost an inch and a half down. I mean, wait a minute, my false eyelid is actually upside down. And then you walk away. And you just go do life. And Paul's, and James is saying, that's you if you're a listener, but you're not a liver. This is not keeping it real, he says. So what is it? How does it look if we're keeping it real? Well, what it looks like is found in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's two things about this. Number one, you're looking in order to live it. 
It says you're persevering. You're not just a hearer. You're staying at it. You keep letting it change you. God tells you stuff. And you're trying to put it into action. It's not how much truth you know, it's how much truth you live. That's why in Romans chapter 2, I mentioned earlier that this word, the hyper-listener, is used there. And he says, you know, the one that's a hyper-listener but doesn't do it is not the one that's declared righteous. What he says in the next verse is shocking. He's talking to the Jews there, the Jewish Christians. He says then, there are Gentiles who don't even have the Bible. And they're just living what they know by conscience to be right. He says they're the ones that God's justifying, declaring righteous, putting his his approval upon. They have hardly any truth compared to, to you guys. But it's lived truth. It is not how long you've been a Christian or how much knowledge you have required. It's how much you are living it out in daily experience. I would even suggest to you that there is much evidence in the New Testament and the Old, actually, that a lot of knowledge, when it's not being lived, has one constant fruit, pride and spiritual coldness. If we are not imbibing in order to live, it is actually destructive, the truth that is within us. We become proud people. We become pharisaical people. We become harsh people. But it is not only looking in, and, and listening to the Scripture in order to live it. And this, to me, is as important a part of this passage as anything we're going to say. You are looking to become loving. This is what it means to keep it real. Because look at what he says. He says, you are to be looking into the perfect law of liberty. Now, what's that about? Well, in chapter 2, he tells us, in chapter 2, verse 12, he talks about the law of liberty. And that passage is where he's talking about people that were not living out the Ten Commandments. And he even cites a couple of the commandments there. And basically, he's saying the law of liberty and this principle in the New Testament is God's moral law. I don't mean the, the, the civil law or the ceremonial law or the millions of laws of the Old Testament. He's talking about the general Ten Commandments of God, which basically Jesus says in Matthew 22 have two summary statements. In Matthew 22, verse 30, uh, 37 to 40, they were, he was asked, you know, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, he says, well, here are the two commandments, really. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, everything else hangs on these. So when he talks about the law that has been implanted in us, and other places it's called the law of Christ, it's the principles of righteousness that are lived out, and the Christians now have the freedom to live that law. So what is it? It is the law of love. It is what James in chapter 2 is going to talk about. You're not following the law of liberty, the, the, the law that you've been liberated to live. You're not loving. You're partisan. You're, you're discriminating, he talks about in chapter 2. The law that he's, the scripture that he's preeminently talking about is saying what the scripture will do is it will teach you to love. He said, if you're really looking in the law, 
It'll teach you. If you're really reading the scripture, you'll get theology. You'll get other things. But how do you know if you're really looking in the mirror and being changed? You love God and you love other people. This is really important to understand because it is tremendously easy as believers, as followers of Christ, to think that because we're getting more knowledge or because we're, we're getting a broader perspective of life and the worldview, that we're, we're, we're getting it and, and we're keeping it real. If we are not growing in love with Jesus, if we are not growing in our love and kindness and compassion to other people, James would say to us, guys, you're not keeping it real. You're not, you're either looking at the wrong mirror or you're not hearing the message that is there and living it out in your life. Love God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength is what it means to be living out truth. Blue Like Jazz is a book by Donald Miller. It was written a few years ago. And uh, the last chapter of Blue Like Jazz, which is subtitled Non-Religious Thoughts on Christian Spirituality. The last chapter of his book, he closes with a chapter titled Jesus, The Lines on his face. And in that chapter, he talks about a guy named Alan. This guy named Alan had gone around the country and had interviewed uh, spiritual leaders. And he was recounting this guy's Alan visit with a man named Bill. It was a guy named Bill Bright, who was a head of um, a major Christian organization. And as he visited Bill Bright, he asked him the questions, he asked everybody, and then he asked the final question he always asked of everybody. And Donald Miller was recording what happened when Alan interviewed Bill Bright. And he asked Bill Bright the question, what does Jesus mean to you? And Bill Bright was sitting behind his desk, and he said, Dr. Bright couldn't answer the question. He said, Dr. Bright just started to cry. He sat there in his big chair, and he wept. He was so overwhelmed with love for Christ. And Donald Miller, in his typical, if you've read anything by him, you know this fits right with his style. He said, when Alan told that story, I wondered what it was like to love Jesus that way. I knew then that I would like to know Jesus like that. With my heart, not just my head, I felt that would be the key to something. It is. It's the key to what it means to keep it real. The whole purpose of God giving us the scripture, the whole purpose that that we have church like this and we gather, is that we will love Jesus more that we'll know him more, that we will be overwhelmed with with the beauty and the glory and the spectacularness of Christ. And James says, guys, I don't care how much data you've got. I I don't care how many things you're listening to, how many books you're reading, how many websites, how many podcast sermons you got, and you're all stirred up and fired up, and you think, oh, I'm getting it now, I'm getting it now. 
If it's not making you love Jesus more, you're not keeping it real. Because that's what it's about. But there's something else. It's not only about loving God. It's about loving others. This law of God, this law of liberty, the law that we're liberated to live out in Christ is to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is actually the whole focus of the book of James. James' concern is that people in the early church were starting to get knowledge without becoming kind. It happens a lot, doesn't it? And so he wrote the book of James, and he talks to them about stuff like this. Here we are at verse 22 to 20, 25. We're in verse 25. In the very next verse, he's going to talk about harsh words. He's going to talk about overlooking the poor and in need. In chapter 2, he's going to talk about partisan behavior and discrimination of others. In chapter 3, he's going to talk almost the entire chapter on our words and our tongue. And he describes the, the, the tongue as a fire, as poison, as polluted water flowing out of a, of a foul spring. And he's saying, watch it, be careful. Your words are so important. In chapter 4, he's going to talk about quarrels and fights and pride. In chapter 5, he's going to talk about greed and grumbling against others who take money away from you. Hey, in the last 10 months, we've lived through a lot of noise, racial tensions, pandemic, election cycle, and conspiracy theories in abundance. Christians are reading, watching podcasts, tuned in to one view of reality or another. The question is, with all your learning and all your hearing, are you loving Jesus more? Well, I'm, I'm getting a bigger world. Yeah, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, are you more in love with Jesus Christ? And are you more in love with people? All people. Even the other side of the aisle people. If we're not growing in love, we're not keeping it real. And James is saying, my concern for you brothers and sisters is that you think you're learning and you're, and you're growing and, 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 and you're getting it. But you're not keeping it real if you're not living love. If you can't process with people, if, if you're living out the us and thems. And my question is not, are you becoming a better American? Because now I understand things. Are you becoming a better Christian? And you know, because you're loving Jesus more and you're loving people better. The other thing we find here is, by doing in verse 26 and 27 what God told all Christians to do, and he says two things. 
He says we keep it real by yielding to Jesus' control. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He says start by getting rid of contemptuous words towards others. Stop thinking in terms of us and them. Love people. All people. Hear people. Value people and not take on words that are unbridled because you're deceiving your heart if you think you're keeping it real as a believer. And then he says, yield to Jesus' priorities. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Invest yourselves in the lives of people around you. He said orphans and widows. Now, this was representative of the two most needy classes in ancient society. They are the ones that are most highlighted in the Old Testament as needing care. The reason for that is we understand orphans, right? Orphans are those that have no parents to take care of them. There was no um, social system to do that. But widows, I mean, what about... What about, you know, couldn't, couldn't women work? Well, it was a male-dominated workforce. And also, they didn't have life insurance policies. They didn't usually have uh, savings. They, they, it was an agrarian culture. And so, he says, there were many people, particularly in the Roman world, where widows and orphans were the, those that were most destitute. And he says, visit orphans and widows. Now, this doesn't mean to have a friendly social call and stop by. The word visit here meant to go in with the aim of caring for and supplying the needs of those visited. 1 Timothy 5, widows were actually put on a list for in the churches. They would, when, with widows that were in the church, they, they actually qualified for a list where they would be financially cared for by the church because there was not anything culturally for them. The early church not only cared for their own widows and orphans, but they were famous for caring for those of people around them. Pliny, in the air, that's a guy's name. This, actually, historically, we hear of Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger. I don't remember which one this is, but Pliny, anyway, one of the boys. And he was a, a governor in the area of Turkey, and he hated Christians, but they drove him crazy because he had to acknowledge certain things about them. And he actually talks with shock and dismay because he said this pagan religion of Christianity does something we don't understand. Their followers not only care for their own widows and needy, but those of the Romans as well. They not only care for their own families when disease hits their home, and what the Romans would usually do as a way of protecting themselves is they would literally take their family members out and leave them in a field to die, and the Christians would go and take care of them. When they, infanticide was one of the pre, pre uh, lost the word, was one of the largest practices in the Roman Empire, especially if you got a girl and you wanted a boy, you would just leave your child out on the hillside. Christians scoured the hillside for the infants. It was money, cost to do that. 
I'm not being political with this. I'm just saying this from my heart. Whatever your political stance is, make sure what's driving it is Christian faith. You may be totally against big government, and I get it, completely get it. But think of why you're against big government. I don't want social program. Well, that's fine. But if you're a Christian, if you cut all social programs, you better be ready to ante up like the early church did and do what they did in the place of government programs. And you say, well, I am willing to do that, and I'd love to see the church grow up. Well, that would be beautiful. But just recognize when we want to, to, to minimize everything and we're against Recognize the church has always been about compassion. And if we don't have the government do it, then we need to be ready to do it. Say we're ready to do it, that's awesome. We hate immigrants, false immigrants, alien immigrants here. Okay, we want them to obey the law, and that's against law. I get it, that's a, that's a proper motivation. But if your motivation is because they come, and they take my money, and they take my services... I don't think that's how the early believers would have processed whether we should have immigrants or not. If you want to say they should obey the law, fine. But if you want to say they're not taking my money, they're not, is that Christian? I have a hard time thinking it is. And again, I'm not saying politically we should do this or that. I'm just talking, we've got to say, what's my motive? You may come out to very clear that this is, is wrong to have these practices, that's fine. Just check why. Just check what's ruling our hearts. It is such a beautiful thing, in my opinion, to see the multitudes of families in our church that have entered the foster care program that are adapting children through the foster care system simply because that is the orphans of our culture. In the early church, it said this, Bishop of Athens Athenagoras wrote a letter to Emperor Marcus Aurelius titled, A Plea for the Christians. And after his presenting the principles of the Sermon on the Mount as the standard of believers' lifestyles, he wrote this, But among us you will find uneducated persons and artisans and old women who, if they are unable in words to prove the benefit of our doctrine, yet by their deeds exhibit the benefit arising from their persuasion of its truth. They don't rehearse speeches, but exhibit good works. When struck, they do not strike again. When robbed, they do not go to law. They give to those that ask of them and love their neighbors as themselves. This was the defense to the civil government of the lifestyle of Christians. Is it ours? Is it ours when it says... When they're struck, they don't strike again. When robbed, they don't go to law. They give to those who ask them, love their neighbors as themselves. Is there a spirit of wanting to have a countercultural lifestyle as a people? I think that's what Jesus is saying when there is the ultimate mark of Christians is there is a gentle compassion. He says in verse 27, the latter part, divest yourselves of the values of the world around you and keep oneself unstained from the world. The world's fighting for rights. 
The world's fighting for their view of America. Just, are we buying into the world's agenda, whatever political side you're on? Are we, are we, or are we buying into Jesus? Is there a gentle compassion that is ruling our hearts? We can hold our, our political persuasions with great intensity personally. But are what we're known for should be, is a gentle humility and kindness. Jesus, James is saying to fight for Christ's view of righteousness and the building of his kingdom, it comes by Christians keeping it real, letting God's word speak into our lives, causing us to fall in love with Jesus. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India, and they had countless orphans and they were caring for. And she tells the story in her book, The, a gold, the gold Cord, um, of one day they were, were there and they were, they were taking care of these children and the kids were just screaming and crying and there was one of the Indian women was there, a believer, and she was more and more agitated, and, and, uh, and they were terribly understaffed. And she finally just said to Amy, she said, I, here was her statement. She said, I, I'm sorry, I have to go. I must do the Lord's work. And Amy was so mad. And she looked around this room, and she said, what do you think we're doing? I don't know what the Lord's work is for you. But it will be done if it's in the Lord's power with kindness, with gentleness, with truth, at times with boldness, but it will be done with a humble boldness. But the Lord says if we're really looking into the law of liberty, if we're really looking into the the scripture speaking into our lives, it will help us love Jesus. And it will help us love others. All others. Lord, I'm just asking you to apply this message where you see the need. I want you to do it first in me. But I do pray that you would speak to all of us. Lord, in the noise, in the cultural contentiousness. We want to live Christ. Help us to do that, Lord. We want to keep it real. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.